Hi everyone, welcome back to the Early Education Show. We're up to episode 21. We can drink in America now. Congratulations. I'm Liam. I'm Lisa. And I'm Leanne. Uh, so we'll... Can we drink while we're doing the podcast? Uh, I think it's mandatory. Have you, have you two been not? <laughs> well, I, I thought you were, Lisa, so... <laughs> <laughs> um, no, we'll... I'm sorry, that's just me normally. <laughs> we'll no, cra- you've mentioned it a few times. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. We'll we'll crack straight on with the the news list. So we're going to uh, and I'll we'll just quickly touch on this. So just as we're recording this, so just for uh, everyone's benefit, we're recording this on Wednesday night uh, today. The um, the omnibus bill, which includes the Jobs for Families package, passed the House of Representatives um, on party lines. So the it is now will now be going to the Senate, um, and because the um, and Leanne had to send me a helpful um, guide to how the Senate works today, but because because the bill has been referred to a Senate committee, um, it can't be voted on until that report's been done. So we probably won't be having a vote in the Senate until um, early March and uh, sorry late March. And the twentieth. Twentieth, yes. So as I've as I've done for the last couple of episodes, at the end we'll we'll definitely recommend that people go and contribute to the that inquiry. Um, What's the closing date for the inquiry? Uh, for submissions, Thursday? yeah, it's soon. It's not too far away. I think it's the yeah, but um, okay, thirteenth of March. Should definitely be getting onto that, people. So that's breaking news as we record tonight. So um. Mm-hmm. Yes, very exciting. But we'll um, we'll turn over. I think you're bringing us the first uh, first piece, Leanne, about um, a new centre being built. Well, we won't dwell on this one too much because it's not huge news. But it was really just talking about. I mean, there's a there's a positive and a not so interesting positive in this. One is that there's a a new centre being built to the cost of six point five million dollars, which is um, quite you know, interesting, not not a huge amount of money, but it's being used with sustainable um, green products that um, the builder is very excited about. The thing that grabbed me was that it was being used as a marketing tool and that parents would want to use the centre because it was sustainable. And I thought that that was just ignoring the fact that parents will use a centre because it is available basically, because there is, is a huge shortage of, of particularly not twos care. So I just thought it was a really interesting way of, of putting this idea that there was a lot of choice out there for families and that they would make a choice on a sustainable um, building. Yeah, rather than, you know, learning or well-being or anything. Yes, yes, that's right, that's right. <laughs> or it's available, simply available. But this is, it kind of reflects. We we had a chat. Uh, I can't remember. It might have been mid last year. Just about um, even things like marketing around food and and the, the specific kinds of you know kale and quinoa being provided. The mm. the marketing's become interesting. I think of early childhood centres over the last little while. There's some interesting tangents been going on. I'd, I'd, I'd be surprised if families cared much else about exactly right a, a getting into a centre and b their children's experience there, not what it's yeah. Um, the yeah. connection that they had. I, I think it's not the idea that people would go in and have their conscious um, conscience alleviated of all guilt by, um, you know, dropping their child there in terms of the environment. They're going to ensure that the environment is absolutely fine by leaving their child there. Wonderful. Um, the next piece we're going to look at is a piece from the not not a not a, a newspaper. Liam, or... could I just interrupt oh. because oh, sure. I just discovered that um, I gave the wrong date 
it wasn't the 13th, so it's the 3rd of March. So by the time you're oh. hearing this podcast, um, inquiries, ha- uh, submissions had to have been in. That's right. It'll be, it'll be that day. So it's oh. Friday, is it? Um, is that the yes, third? Of, what's the date today? The first of March. Yeah. So yep. if you're listening to this first thing in the morning, please, you've still got time to get in your your, your submission. So go for it. And the other thing I just realised that's interesting about this is it's been re- um, referred to the Community Affairs Senate Committee rather than our normal education um, committee. So it's a different committee that's actually doing the inquiry. So they don't know as much about early education <laughs> as the education committee does. Mm. So they'll need some they'll need some schooling from from yes. from advocates out there. Get onto it, people. Yes, they will. They will. So the next piece is from the Naomi Valley Independent. I'm not sure, but I'm not sure, but it's on the news list. Who who wants to to take this one for us? Uh, look, I will. I think I put this one on the news list. Um, uh, if I can remember what it's about, that is. What's this one about? So this is about uh, Gunnada, which is being on the cusp oh, of yeah, leading national yeah. change in early childhood education, which sounds pretty exciting. Yeah, so it is, because what it is, it's a story about um, uh, Gunnada, which is a small town in New South Wales, and Gunnada's got really interesting social problems, you know, like it's clearly... One of those small towns where it's quite divided between um, a low socioeconomic um, community and a slightly more um, well-off community. And um, so this community has managed, or a, a, um, a philanthropist has um, a, a given the community, I think it's two, uh, it's a multi-million dollar 10-year campaign called Every Gunnadar Child and it aims to ensure that every five-year-old in Gunnadar is ready to start school and it's being done with um, uh, one of the uh, preschool um, directors there who's an amazing woman called um, Carolyn Lees and so this like I just think it's really amazing that a community has managed to get a private philanthropist um, from Sydney um, uh, to donate multiple million dollars to make sure that um, the you know that the community um, gets you know their children um, get early education. Hmm. Was it does the um, philanthropist have a history in Gunnedah? Is that the is that I, the case don't, or I don't think he, he is. Um, um, it, it, the article doesn't say that, and I'd, I'd love to interview them and find out more about it. But um, uh, what, uh, you know, it, um, he's a horse stud owner. Um, no, it doesn't say where he's from. Uh, but they say, like, it's got an actual aim, which is that they want to reduce Gunnedah's development mentally vulnerable um, children on the AEDC to just 5% and then transfer the lessons learnt to other regional and urban communities. Oh, wow. And it's, it says, key to the success of the Gunnedah program, according to its concept paper, is developing local leadership so the town is in some form responsible for raising all of its children. Mm. Isn't that That's wonderful? Great. It is. It's wonderful. And I think that it is a tribute to um, Carolyn 
in that community because she's worked so hard. Yeah. I think we, you yeah. know, we've got that, that background knowledge of her. But I think it is about that, that connection that she has made in that community that probably has made the difference there, which is really she's what a great role model she is really yeah. for for um, early childhood professionals. Oh, for sure, you know, a real advocate for her community and for the children most in need in her community. Um, I've actually just found the line that said Gunda has been chosen for the ambitious program as its census figures on the issue match the national average. Ah, okay. It's the most average. Yep. Yeah. See, it's interesting. I would have thought it would have been worse than that, but apparently yeah. not. Well, well, yeah. Well done to Carolyn, and, and well done to um, to John Barnes as well, who's um, who's spearheading this. But the, the, the yeah. part of me does go, it's a it's a little bit concerning that this has to happen to ensure that children get early childhood education. That you know, a fantastic advocate has to come together with um, you know a private sort of business person. That this probably should just be something that's heaven forbid funded by the government to be done properly but um i guess but maybe, until there's, maybe there is some value here in the um public private partnerships yes. because what what we do know about carolyn as well is that she looks everywhere for these opportunities yeah. and so i think in in doing that she is really sort of yeah taking off that uh, taking that opportunity i suppose but is there an opportunity for for philanthropy yeah. to raise the bar even higher? I think there is, and then because I don't want to get too deep into it because I'd probably actually like to tackle it in an episode another time. I've written about this before because, you know, I'm a lefty anarchist from way back, but, the, you know, the big workforce productivity gains that are, you know, supposedly sit parallel alongside with the early childhood education sector. So, you know, essentially putting aside our advocacy for children's right to early education, but saying that this supports um, particularly women to access the workforce. There's no, the the, the lack of interest and investment from, you know, the the business community of Australia is kind of shocking. And there there seems to me there's some sort of opportunity for some specific advocacy there about going to, you know, the business community in Australia saying this supports you as well. You know, let's get on board and, and work some of this out together. But I, I'm, I'm yeah, all... I think, yeah, it'd be a good topic for us to do up ahead, Liam. You're right, because I think this is... We don't have a strong culture of philanthropy. No. Um, of I mean, there's some amazing philanthropists in Australia, incredible. Yeah. Um, and we can focus on those up ahead, but it is... But we don't have that culture, and it would be interesting to explore it, yeah. Absolutely. Um now I'm going to bring. I'm going to talk about the next one because I'm so excited. Um, this one is we're, we're back to one of our favourite topics, which is <laughs> shonks and rotters in the family daycare <laughs> sector, um, and particularly my favourite phrase of the week. And I was begging Lisa and Leanne all week via email for us to change the name of our podcast to this, um, and they sensibly said no. We're, we're 21 episodes in. We've probably got to keep the episode we got. But um, uh, it was announced. Again, I mean, I'm not entirely sure what's new about this crackdown, but there's now another crackdown on on you know rotting in family daycare, and particularly the the actual the, the prime minister actually came out um, and called and said that the sector was a hotbed for shonks and rotters. So I a, a hotbed of shonks. I, I I'm so desperate for our, if this podcast was being launched now, I would have called us a hotbed of shonks because I think that's just one of the most <laughs> one of the most fantastic terms. I've ever heard, but um, I don't know what else to say on this except, again, it's almost like 
I don't know if they're having a bad news week. They just sort of have another article or another media release about we're cracking down on family daycare rorting. Didn't we do this three months ago? Yes. And it's also got um, one of Lisa's favourite news pictures in it too. It does. <laughs> we need to do a whole episode on that picture one day. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not my favourite picture. No, it's one of your favourites. Isn't it the one with the balls that's your yeah. favourite? Oh, it's slightly different, that's right. It's probably second favourite because it comes yeah. up a lot. Um, yeah, but it's interesting. So the the, the separate to this, this article seems to be another you know reheat of um, the the same stories we've seen over and over again. Uh, it does slightly tie into our main topic tonight, which I'll come back to a little bit later. But um, yes, so um, so the early education show, but unofficially in brackets, hotbed of shonks, I think is, or if I start a band or something, an early, an early childhood band, I'm going to be going to call us hotbed of shonks. I love it. Um, we're then going to go over to um, the oh another observer that the oh god I'm going to mispronounce this. This would be the Ningen observer. Apologies to anyone from Ningen or that area. I've probably got that um, that wrong. But this is about some of the funding changes which will which will impact a mobile service. I think uh, Lisa, did you you bring us this one? Yeah, I bought us this one, and I was really pleased to see that this was tweeted not just by Kate Ellis, but also by um, uh, Kathy, Kathy... Kathy McGowan. Indy. Kathy McGowan, yeah. So they both picked up on this one. Um, it's just about um, the impact that um, the Jobs for Families package will have on services like the popular, as it's called, Bogan Bush Mobile Service, which is actually based in Ningen. So... Um, you know, they're going to get less money um, and, you know, it's, um, uh, you know, they're going to have to go under the normal CCB system than our, or the new subsidy system, I should say, rather than just getting the block money that they've been getting under BBF before. Um, and uh, it says that the federal government commissioned PricewaterhouseCoopers to prepare a report on the BBM and make recommendations regarding its transition to the new model. But um, the Shire Council has responded saying that the proposed changes were likely to render the service not viable and not appropriate to the needs of rural and remote families. So we haven't spoken a lot on this about the impact. We've spoken about the impact of BBF Aboriginal services, but not a lot about BBF um, mobile services. Yeah, it's going to have pretty wide-reaching impacts for a whole bunch of these um, these services that just can't just can't fit in the mainstream system. You can actually vote at the bottom of that uh, article about whether you're concerned about the changes to childcare funding. Oh, and so and far, twenty-seven. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So. I'm so going to add mine vote. right now. Mm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I just voted. Did you vote, Leanne? I did just vote, and when I voted, it was ninety-two point five nine. So I think um, uh, we're taking We've the just average number that we have. We have um, and then the last one we're going to quickly touch on is um, so people might have seen this made this sort of caused a sort of small media splash. I think earlier in the week, but um, this was about a an early childhood centre in Western Australia that's starting to make parents wear photo IDs for for, for drop-offs. Um, I so. 
<laughs> I don't know if anyone wanted to particularly tackle this. My main question is: is how exactly do they do they going to give them lanyards or will they have to getting little little like name tag sticker thingies? Little lanyards, actually. And little... also, yeah, what they have to like. I don't get how a photo ID worn around your neck. Do you have to compare it to you? Because I don't know about you guys, but my passport photo and I don't look anything like <laughs> So we should, I should give a quick summary of this piece. I've started mocking it already, but um, a, 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 a group of early childhood um, services in uh, the Western Australia have, have had a review of their security procedures. Apparently they actually brought in a private contractor with a huge amount of security experience to um, uh, review their procedures and decided that there were some gaps in terms of particularly polite parents opening the door for other unknown people um, and uh, and a couple of other minor things. So apparently one of the solutions was, yes, that uh, during drop-off parents would have to be wearing photo ID um, which in practice I just don't know is how is, is going to work for them. But, um, I mean, to be fair, separate to moving slightly away from, from having a bit of a laugh, that is a bit of those polite parents. That is, a, it is, to be fair, it is a little bit of a security issue that, that you kind of, everyone just kind of lets everyone in. But that's, I mean, I don't think some sort of, I don't think well, photo ID is going to help with that. No, it's not going to help. But I, I was thinking maybe more futuristic. So I was looking at something <laughs> so... Stay with me here. Um, I was looking at this thing, um, an article about Amazon, and there's a, a, a test shop in Seattle where you just take things off the shelf, put them in your bags, and then you can walk through the aisle, you know, like you, you oh. scan when you come in, and then you walk straight out. You don't have to go through the checkout or even self-checkout. So, and, and then it just goes to your credit card, which I thought was fantastic because that would save you a lot of time. But... What this gives the opportunity for is some sort of insert into like your skull or something or your scalp and then you can just go straight through without not ringing the bell or anything like that and then pick your child up. So nobody would get into the service in the first place without their little kind of barcode in their head or whatever. <laughs> but, I mean, who hasn't been annoyed by the doorbell in so many services? They still seem to have them where everybody lets everybody in via the, you know, the doorbell. No? No, I think you're right. Well, I might just get bouncers. Might be, might be an easier way. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, look, I'm just thinking Amazon could be all over this and it would, there would be no need to, um, to have photo ID because people would be automatically, you know, marked with... Anyway, <laughs> can you just get a drone to come in and pick up the child and return it home? <laughs> I think it's legit. We'll all have data in our, you know, we'll have data pieces That's in true. our head. I think, I think Leanne's annoyed we're not taking this seriously, Lisa. I think she's <laughs> she's onto a business idea here. <laughs> if Amazon's you're... already doing it, Leanne. <laughs> but these, uh, the, 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 the best ideas, Leanne, are the ones that take other ideas and put a twist on them. So you don't need to worry about that. If it's a, it's a new application, you'll be fine. Okay. All right. There you go. There we go. So, um, yes, it's hard enough getting a decent passport photo. Imagine having to then get another one just for for picking up your children at the end of the day. Anyway, good good, good luck to them. I'll be interested to see how long that, that lasts, but uh, we'll see how we go. All right, that's it for the news list. We'll be, we'll, we'll be doing that again next week.
so let's move over now to our big topic for tonight. So um, we're going to have a chat about the outcome of the National Quality Agenda Review, which took, which was announced by CEQA um, a few weeks back in February. So um, we'll start with probably just a little bit of the sort of history and background, um, just so we know sort of all where we're at, but obviously... As most people listening to the show should know, the National Quality Agenda, which includes the National Quality Framework and the Early Years Learning Framework and the National Law and Regulations, uh, launched officially to the sector in 2012. Um, part of the launch always included that there would be what's what was called the, the NQA review, which was basically a, a point to sit back and have a look at particularly um, the regulatory burden on the sector, um, but also... Uh, how the national quality standard was tracking and then those kind of things. So that began in 2014. It took a very, very long period of time for some reason, which included consultation with the sector um, on the uh, regulatory impact statements. This was basically a you know, sort of document looking at what was the burden to both uh, service providers um, and to educators, but also to a CEQA. Um, and some of you may have actually been to some of those sessions. I remember going to the to the session. It was almost you know three years ago now. Uh, but that then uh, fed into the report we finally got, which I think was made available to the education ministers, to the state and territories, and federally in December. Uh, and then they made the decision to implement uh, some of the recommendations in the review, and that's been, been announced to the sector. So that's a very quick headline bullet point summary of where we are now. Um, in terms of the way we're going to sort of tackle it tonight, we're going to I, we've sort of made the decision to sort of split it into two sort of general broad sections, which is one changes to the law and the regulation. So these are the sort of um, the, the nitty gritty. Uh, part of the legislation that sectors sort of have to up, uphold, um, and then changes to the national quality standard, which are, um, which there's sort of one big change, and then um, a, a couple of changes to the approach. But I'd also like to talk a bit about a sequel's role as well. So, um, Lisa, I think you put up your hand to sort of give us a bit of a summary of the changes for each of these things. So did you want to maybe? Yeah. We're going to start with the law and regs. I think. Do you want to maybe um, sit down, everyone, into class and? Can both of you please, you know, interrupt me when I get it wrong or if you know more about something than me? Cause we never interrupt each other, Lisa, as if we do that. <laughs> really? <laughs> okay, so um, the um, uh, the changes to the regs and law, and obviously changes to the NQS are in fact part of a change to the regs, and, to the regs because the NQS sits inside the regulation. Um, so it, it is actually part of a change to regulation, but we've split it into the two different parts. So the first thing is um, a change to the assessment process. Now, I'm not going through every change that's been made, just the um, main ones, but the change to the assessment process is that now to receive an exceeding rating, you now need to get an exceeding rating in all quality areas, all seven of the quality areas, um, which I can imagine that all of us think is probably a pretty good idea. Do we? Definitely. Yeah, yes. overall, definitely. Yeah, so you can't get one crappy area and still get an exceeding. If you're going to exceed, you're going to exceed on everything. Um, the next thing is... Oh, please excuse that plane going overhead as I speak. I live under a flight path and it's a very noisy night tonight. 
Um, so, yeah, the, um, uh, the next one is to take away the fee for having an excellent rating. I reckon that's also pretty good. But also so that you can only apply to the ex uh, for an excellent rating if you do have that exceeding in all areas. So I think that's important for services that may have had the exceeding rating at the moment but don't have it in all seven areas. If you want to apply for an excellent rating, you only have until February of next year to do it. So you really have to get those in. Otherwise, you'll have to wait until you do get marked exceeding in all areas before getting an excellent rating. Next, there's a whole bunch of changes for around family daycare. Um, the most important ones is that there's now an, a, a set ratio of family daycare coordinators to educators. In the first year that a family daycare sets up, it's got to be 1 to 15. So for each 15 educators you've got on the ground, you've got one coordinator helping them along and showing them how to do things. After that, it's one in 25 after your first year. And think, Sorry, Lisa, that, I think that used to be a kind of, wasn't there a bit of an industry, so to speak, standard that, there, that was there and it wasn't, in, it wasn't legislated, but people, um, the community sector generally uh, had that standard. Yeah, I think especially, I know that's true in New South Wales. I'm not sure if it's true in every other state, but yeah. So it's good to see that one coming in because it mm. means that some of those um, uh, some of those in the hotbed of shonks won't in fact be able to do that. You know, just have one coordinator to 100 educators anymore. Um, the next thing is an interesting one around approvals. Now the government will have the right to, and this is a bit complex, but they'll have a right to assess before giving people uh, and a, pro a provider approval, whether or not they think they're capable of understanding the law and regulations and uh, running a service, you know, in a capable way. So that'll be an interesting one. Um, then we go on to certified supervisor requirements and basically the whole concept of certified supervisors, including the very name, will no longer be from... Um, uh, uh, October of this year, that's the last we'll ever hear of certified supervisors in their place or is that they will still be the concept of responsible person so that somebody will have to be a responsible person um, but they'll no longer have to have that um, certified supervisor certificate or the centre's certified supervisor certificate. So you just have to choose someone at your service that has got enough nows to be um, a responsible person and they can be it. Some states already have a requirement that that person um, have child protection legislation. And I think, but I'm not positive, that the other states now will also have that requirement. So that's really a win for um, getting rid of unnecessary red tape, I think. What do you two think about that? I, I think it's. I think it was. Sorry, Liam. No, no, no. After you. No, no, no. After you, Liam. Oh. Um, I, I think it was an an administrative process that was just slowing down, uh, the, the state regulators. However, I just feel like there's not enough there. 
and that maybe that was never going to do it anyway, but there's just not quite enough there to say that a person is a responsible person where the approved provider is is um, saying that because it's in the interest of the approved provider just to have a responsible person or they can't run. So I, I there's just something about it that still bothers me, but I don't know that the supervisor's certificate was ever going to do it anyway. Yeah, I think the, the media, the, I might go into more detail on this a bit later when we sort of do a bit of a summary, but I think it's it's one of the evidence that a lot of this NQA review is about a shift of responsibility from uh, the state regulators to the approved provider, um, which can work or not or not work. I'm, I'm I'm similar to Leanne. I think that the, the certified supervisor system, as it was, was was tricky and maybe wasn't producing the best outcomes. But I do like the fact that there was a touch point, there was a process between the regulator and the approved provider to ensure that the right people were in place. And I'm not. And given that we we know that not every approved provider is fantastic, I'm not entirely, I'm not necessarily 100% happy with that being that the approved provider can then just sort of do whatever they want in that in that situation. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. One of the things that will um, kind of make it a bit better is that you can now have more than one nominated supervisor at a service. Mm. Obviously, only one can be the responsible person at any time, but you can have more than one, which will help those services that have job shared director positions. But it will also just help you may not need you know, 10 certified supervisors so that there'll always be one on. You know, if you've got two nominated supervisors, then you can do your rosterings or, you know, three if you're a big service so that you can do your rostering so that there's always actually a nominated supervisor in the responsible person role. Yeah, which was always there in New South Wales before the cha- before the changes. Um, uh, yes, it was. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, this is an obvious one. It's kind of strange it wasn't there from the start, really. Yeah. I think that they wanted to... I actually had a long discussion with someone in the department or someone in a CQR, and it was that they really wanted responsibility clear for the purposes of suing and legal responsibility <laughs> if things went wrong. But obviously they've decided maybe it's not needed quite so much. Um, and the final one is um, services will... Uh, uh um now have um a sleep now have to have a sleep and rest policy for babies and toddlers um and this was in recognition of um indiana hicks who was um a a five-month-old baby who died in the care of a family daycare educator and in 2012, and her parents campaigned very strongly. What they wanted was a whole law called Indiana's Law, which required people to check sleeping babies every 15 minutes and um, a few other things. They didn't go as far as what the family wanted, but they did um, require them, require all services to now have a sleep and rest policy and they're talking about giving guidance to services about SIDS, which I would hope all services would know. But that's just one more compulsory policy that services will have to do. 
So that's kind of more or less my summary of the you know, the key changes that will affect most people. Did either of you want to add any others to that? I've probably got maybe just one or two quick ones. Um, yeah. There's a – it's interesting. So the um, – this, this will get into the sort of operational weeds for some people. So apologies if you're not sort of in a service <laughs> managing it. This might not be so hugely interesting. But um, there's some interesting changes to some of the definitions of uh, particularly things like serious incidents. Um, they're fairly yeah. semantic, but they're actually quite – and that, but they do actually tighten things up and make it a lot clearer. There's – I think – in the NQF, as it launched, there was it was it, there were a lot of situations that was quite tricky to determine what exactly was a serious incident. Whereas this tightens it up to, you know, you quite specific things like you know, an, an emergency services actually attending rather than or to reasonably to have sought you know emergency services because is quite a is quite a varied definition. Um, and then two sort of related things, which was that the prescribed matters for notification, so what needs to be reported to the state-based regulator, um, will now include uh, physical or sexual abuse that's um, happened or, or, or possibly have happened on uh, at the centre, um, which I think is good and will align well with, you know, state-based reportable conduct schemes and will just... You know, just for me, is another layer of protection for children, um, and part of that, and and sort of sitting alongside that, will be the requirement for nominated supervisors to have annual um, training in child protection. So, though th- there's there's a lot of other stuff as well, but that that to me, um, they're, they're a couple of pretty interesting ones I think for service providers to know about. Yes, indeed. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, we might move on then to, I guess, to the changes to the national quality standard then, Lisa. And are you happy to run us through those as well? No, no, no. You can do that. <laughs> you don't need oh, to. Oh, no, I that. volunteered, didn't I, before we started? So yeah, did. <laughs> this, this is really interesting. So people may have actually seen this. This is the same. The draft document that's been put together was actually seen by the sector in the consultation sessions. I remember seeing it. And I, I'm going to... I'm going to I'm going to be a tease and withhold judgment right till the end, but um, the big summary change. Oh, sorry, Liam. You do know that the one that was passed wasn't the one that we saw. I broadly it was so that the, there's the same number of elements and standards. I know there's some specific differences in some of the wording, but the the overall sort of changes. So, um, because everyone probably knows, so currently the national quality standard is um, is oh, seven. As everybody knows. As everybody yeah, sure knows, surely everyone has this sitting next to their next to their bed and, and has a quick flick through each night. Surely I'm not the only one. But um, there the are s- <laughs> there are seven quality areas. Uh, there are um, eighteen standards within those quality areas and fifty eight elements altogether. The new streamlined in inverted commas uh, national quality standard will keep seven quality areas, which will remain exactly the same but there will be 15 elements or a reduction uh, sorry 15 standards which is a reduction of three and 40 elements which is a reduction of 18 um, which sounds quite uh, dramatic but actually looking through uh, as if you said uh, there's not a lot of pointers going through element by element today I think we'll just maybe talk about some of the big ones but uh, the key things for me is that the most of these are the, the combining of elements that probably could stand to have been combined and and crucially for me that quality area one is still nine elements so it was nine elements um in the old or the, or the current national quality standard and will still be nine elements um in the in the revised national quality standard which 
uh, may not be a big deal to everyone, but I think is for me because this is the you know this is educational program and practice where um, we we need to do a lot of advocacy and demonstrating this is what um, long daycare services can do really well. Um, but the, the the overall general way to look at this is is a street is not that elements have necessarily disappeared, but that they've been combined um, and clarified. Uh, I might maybe ask you two to first what you think, rather than. Um, then I might come right at the end because I think I might surprise some people with my opinion. Uh, well, I, I think um, in terms of, I think there was a lot of angst over what would go from this and what would stay and that it might be quite dramatic. But I think that essentially it's not too dramatic. There's, you know, some of the conceptual sort of overlaps there have been taken out. Um and the other uh, the aspect of I know that there there was a a big fight to retain things around play, culture, and environment, and uh, you can see those actually sitting there within the standards. So I think that that was something that the sector pushed very hard on, um, and that's been retained. And the only thing for me is that I just think, and I've always thought the leadership area is quite weak the governance and leadership area. It's a little bit disappointing from my perspective and they and there's been nothing really done to improve that, I suppose, but then you wouldn't get wholesale changes like that. And that reflects, in a way, a review of a similar kind of standard in the UK, much the same, kept all of those same sort of leadership elements the same because to change them would have been too dramatic. So that's, yeah, I... I can't see that it is terribly dramatic. It's interesting how this concept column's been put in there, and I, I mm. don't know that I understand completely why that is. Is it was that because it needed to be explained to people what the concept was, or I don't really understand that. Yeah, they didn't in the consultations. They didn't. Uh, they didn't actually talk specifically. So. Uh just for people who don't have it in front of them, what Leanne's talking about is that where in the current national quality standard where it says sort of um, the the there isn't really a title, the, the, the element is just the element. So, um, you know, uh, the dignity and rights of every child are, are upheld. Um, in the, That's now called the descriptor in the, in the, in the draft one. And there's now a concept that sort of sits above that as a headline. So that's dignity and the rights of the child so they have I, I imagine it must have been because that was there in the in the draft proposal in the consultations this hasn't come as a result of consultation I think I don't know they must just think it's more it's it's clearer or or articulates the the idea ideas better I would well, assume maybe the, the point around the headline is maybe that's a, a great way actually to interpret some of the descriptors for yeah for educators as well, so maybe there's, you know, maybe that is a, a good sort of teaching tool in there. Yeah. What about you, as Lisa? As long as it doesn't mean that some things have gone, you know, mm. and are now just in that. Look, I've always been an opponent of changing the NQS at this stage. I agree that it was probably hastily and somewhat sloppily constructed in the first place, but. I don't think that, um, you know, I think in a sector that's absolutely done in with changes and done in with getting their heads around new concepts to change the standard again 
you know, four years in, I think is, and to change it just because we want to neaten it up, <laughs> that's kind of like bureaucrat stuff rather than people on the floor stuff. So, so, so uh, then, Lisa, what, I know I'm, I know I'm jumping in on your time to talk about this, yeah, but, yeah. but the, I, I do think this is where it comes down to professional autonomy as well, and I think that it is like if we're going to go through a standard and say, okay, I'm doing that, I'm doing that. I, I know what you're saying, but I also think this is the, the opportunity to be confident in the professional um, approach and the autonomy that people have and that they're not just, they're not just um, implementers of, a, of, of, a, of the descriptors. They actually already have this knowledge and then can reflect back on this and say, these are the things that we already do that reflect that. Like I, I just turning it around rather than rather than saying that this is what we have to do, you know, oh, step okay. by step. Yeah, yeah. I, look, I agree. Yeah, I know what you're saying and I agree with that. And, you know, I, I do trust educators can make what they're doing fit into the standard. But I also know that, you know, like there's a lot of um, resources out there from the guide True. to the quality standard. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of... Um, educators that you know have um, like you know um, educators who may only have a cert three that have been um, taken through and you know have have understood one one standard in a way that you know they now get it and you know everyone's policies now have to be changed to reflects the the um you know the the right elements etc and that's just a lot of work you know? yeah and i just true. don't think that the benefits of it outweigh the work but the other thing that scares me is the bits that seem to no longer be there or that have no longer been as prominent that are there so i've got about four or five of them um the first one is ratios and qualifications so where is the old standard actually said implicitly in the law but it's in the law you're either doing it or you're not i i know it's in the law but i think that to have it in the standard reinforces it you know that you have to actually think about whether or not it's it you know you are doing that i think it reinforces it with it, and I'm sure that their reasoning was it's in the law. They've absolutely got to be doing it. But I just think that having it there, you know, made the, the importance of it really explicit. And I don't think, you know, that's there. Um, the other one is that um, one that's worrying me as more and more services are being built in areas that, maybe, you know, wouldn't have always been considered as suitable for a childcare service. They've taken out, um, you used to have to have that the design and the location of the premises is appropriate for the operation of the service. Now it just says the design of the facility. So location is no longer an indicator. Um, you know, it's no longer a standard. So I think that's a bit sad. And the final one is the, the fact that um, the approved learning frameworks are no longer mandated um, 
So it's uh, the old, um, the initial standard in the first one was an approved learning framework informs the development of a curriculum, blah, blah, blah. That's no longer there. It's under that Waffley concept column of approved learning framework, but the standard just reads the educational program enhances each child's learning and development. So... I think I'd, I'd like to ask someone about that one because I'm just I I yeah I I, I think that's just poorly worded. I think they've because it, it it says approved learning framework and the concept, and then in the descriptor they've listed the they've essentially just listed um, summaries of the learning outcomes. So I think the yeah it's no, poorly I, put together. Look, I I think it's the same thing as the ratios and calls. It's there in the the yeah. regulations that ah, you've right, got to yeah. use the framework. Therefore, they've just taken it out of this. But, you know, look, let's be honest. Some services will, like, they look at this. They don't necessarily know the regulations backwards and forwards and so it was sideways, you know? It'd be interesting to see how, what the, that, that particular uh, element or concept, well, I, what that actually looks like when this is published formally, I'd be interested to see because I think that it almost reads like a mistake how they put that together. Mm, no, I think it's the same as the other one. They've taken out things that are absolutes that are in the law, and then mm. and you, yeah, I can see what you're saying that if it's actually there and written in the descriptor, then people have to kind of be be seeing it on a day to day basis or whatever or whenever they look at the standards. So I, yeah, I can see what you're saying. Yeah, I just sort of feel like it's there. Um, yes, that was it for me. Oh well, I'd, I'd, I mean, I just wanted to say that. Um, I mean, anyone who knows me, or even been listening to me the last twenty episodes of um, this crazy show, knows that I generally paint everything, and 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 just am bitter and cynical. Uh, he likes the new <laughs> I, I surprisingly, I don't mind it. I, you actually raised some really good points, Lisa, which I hadn't thought about too much, and I'm I'm going to go away and do some more thinking about it. I don't think you're wrong, um, but I do think there's enough of an overlap between the current standard and the, the new standard. And actually, and I'll say, you know, saying this, putting my money where my mouth is, somebody who works in an organisation where I'll be, you know, one of the people who'll be, you know, rewriting policies and putting stuff together, I'm not too worried about that. I think, like I said, there's nothing that's missing or changed and there's nothing that's radically added. It's it's more a consolidation of stuff. I actually think, because you're right, Lisa, the, the initial development of the National Quality Standard, there was some glaringly just poorly worded and I think vaguely explained uh, things in the current National Quality Standard. I actually think this revised one does a very good job of of clarifying a lot of those things. I think what what's asked of services and what's asked of educators and nominated supervisors is a lot clearer in this. A lot of it will come down to what it's what, what's actually published and what's actually put out and what I assume they'll be developing a new guide to the National Quality Standard. Um, what's in there. But I'm actually a bit surprised overall I didn't hate this when I first saw it. I didn't want to run screaming from the room and say, you've, you've wrecked the NQF. I actually think it's not too bad, with one glaring exception, which is Quality Area 5. I'm actually... So that's been cut. It, the, so Quality Area 5, which is relationships with children, if everyone remembers back to episode or 15 or 16 or something, um, I talked sort of at length about the need. One of the things I would do is prioritize quality area five more i'd move it up to either quality area one or two because i think it's it's the central the the 
what we know about the birth of five space is that just the pure engagement with children is crucial both to their learning and their well-being um i am a little disappointed that what was six elements is now four in in the in the new standard and that they're um although they probably are clearer i don't think the expectation is not as high in that area, which it, it should be. It, 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 it's absolutely crucial to, to maintain that stuff. And I am, uh, yeah, I'm not so happy with that. I'd, so maybe... I'd particularly notice the rights of the child one, Liam, because yeah. the other one said the dignity and rights of every child uh, are maintained, every child at, are maintained all times. at all times. Yeah. And now it just says they're maintained. Yeah, and which I is can disappointing. See how bit, people... Isn't that a bit strange that that's... That it just says that? Yeah. Well, no, no, because a pedant would say maintained means at all times. (laughs) Yeah, okay, okay. Yeah, there's a lot of people that aren't pedantic about language and so reminding people that it's at all times means that you can't just suddenly, yeah. I actually think it's really important, yeah. So maybe the advice that you would give Liam and that Lisa and I would probably give is don't just be people who operationalize policy remember that relationships are the number one and that that's the area that you need to focus on more so than anything else in the whole entire world <laughs> absolutely um i want to move us on so I've we're not always oh. felt five has always been a bit wussy okay. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> oh lisa that's another topic <laughs> <laughs> no it just doesn't it doesn't it doesn't, as you're saying, it doesn't prioritise relationships with children. It's kind of like there is a bit of an afterthought or something. I know, well... Oh, that's right, children, we should bring them in. I'll, I'll refer you to the episode where I talked about that ad nauseum, Lisa. Um, oh, okay. So I think we've... Look, I, I think we've, we've probably touched briefly on overall thoughts but was there anything either of you to i mean i'm very happy for that to stand as my overall thoughts that that um including the law and regs i actually think this is um a fairly good change and a fairly in the majority changes that make sense and are a fairly good streamlining was you know there anything you two wanted to add to before we, we ask a couple of other quick questions only that it's not going to save a lot of money, and I think that was one of the goals <laughs> yeah. that it had. Yeah. And it's going to cost, I think, $4.8 million to establish um, in terms of transition to the new to the new standards and the changes to the laws. And um, so it's going to save $39,500 over 10 years. If you want to just kind of think up the first figure that you thought of, minus <laughs> times it by your IQ, and yeah, sure. I mean, these, that, I that, that's to the see se- how they spend that money. That's the thing no one ever wants to say about it. They're always entirely made up. They've got it's yeah. it's it, yeah. We've got no idea. Um, uh, there was a few things I wanted to say. One was how many things, that, Lisa? Um, oh, there's two. actually more than two. two. There's about five. So oh no! Very quickly. I loved the fact that there's a change that now allows us to have naming and shaming of services. Um, I don't know whether other states have got a history of having this, but um, we used to have a website where people that breached the regs really badly were named and shamed. But they couldn't do that under the existing law. They now reserve the right to do that if it's in the public interest so we can name and shame people. Um 
I love the fact that they discovered along the process that they'd never actually specified in the regs or the law that you couldn't have more children than the number you were licensed for. But now they've discovered that, so now it will in fact be a problem. If you have over numbers, it will be a problem. Um, I also love the fact that um, there, there'll be uh, no change to the current requirement that all elements must be met in order to achieve an overall rating of meeting. So you've still got to meet everything. Some people were arguing that you, know, you, you could just, you know, um, like really, you know, what was pulling them down into that working towards is because they didn't get all elements met. And um, luckily they've looked at it and gone, no, you actually do have to get all, made all elements to actually get a meeting rating. So that's good. Um, I also think it's important to remember sometimes when laws like this come in, we look at what we did get and we didn't don't look at what we didn't get. And one of the things that we didn't get is um, other services like um, BBF services, um, occasional care services weren't bought into the scope ah. of the and I think that's yes. really sad. Yeah, it's a yeah, good point. Yeah, I agree with you. Actually, Lisa, that's that's one, yeah, we did overlook. So thank you for bringing that up because I totally agree with you about that. It's, yeah, me too. I mean, it's it's just ridiculous, ridiculous. Yeah. And the, the final thing I, I wanted to just talk about a bit was the process so that if you go through the decision regulatory impact statement, um, it talk at, at the bottom of each thing it's got this summary of how many survey responses there were for and against what they were doing i think at the highest one was that there was 320 survey responses now this um you know a lot of us went to the sessions that liam spoke about earlier and a lot of organizations um wrote submissions but what they've really traded on that survey, how many people said yes or not or no to something as if it was the final justification. So all of those sessions, all of those words, all of those huge submissions weren't given as much prominence as the survey responses. So I think, but, you know... But there were, only, there were only 113 written submissions. Yeah, true, which is pretty you know, uh, appalling, but a lot more people than that went to these sessions, yes. didn't they? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And they were they were excruciating. Come on. <laughs> Remember yeah, they were. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> I was going to be diplomatic about them. Um, now, I think I, you and I, Leanne, sat at one end of the at different ends of the room and texted each other the whole entire time. <laughs> I think, but I think consultations can be excruciating. Like I, I'm not, I'm not trying to be critical specifically of of this one. Mm, it wasn't but a good I, one. but I do think that, you know, it is part of the kind of new public management around this is what you do. When really, they've already kind of gotten what they, they they're already going to do what they say. It's just consultation sometimes for consultation. Oh, so cynical, yeah. Mm. Ah, sorry. <laughs> That's now, not like me, is it? I know. You're, you're the one we rely on for some positivity. Now, 
I've miserably failed, as usual, to keep us anywhere under an hour. So I'm going to give us a, 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 a quick sentence each on, on this if we need it. But um, I think one of the things uh, which has been a theme of this show has been the, um, the, the issues facing professional development for the sector. And I'm just wondering what we all think uh, is the likelihood that the these changes will be rolled out smoothly and with a full understanding of the sector, given there's no uh, professional support coordinators in place to to manage that. Um, I'm sure a a wealth of um, for-profit education and care providers will run into the rescue and offer you, you know... A template. Policies by numbers and templates to get it all right. Wonderful. All right. Well, um, that's our sort of summary of the National Quality Agenda Review. There is a lot more to it. We'll include links to um, probably a sequel summary article, and we would obviously really recommend that anyone working in the sector um, has a look at that as the the uh, reg changes will be taking place from October and the National Quality Standard changes will be taking place from February. move on now to our recommendations for the week. So do you want to kick us off, Leanne? Uh, Yeah, I went to a TED Talk, um, kind of a a suite of TED Talks, and they're actually titled um, Five TED Talks Every Preschool Educator Should Watch. Now, I don't think any of this will be new to anybody in the early childhood sector. There's you know, words there from Ken Robinson, so wonderful, and talking about um, kindergarten design and talking about children that need champions. And But I, I think um, they're great TED Talks to revisit, to get some inspiration and feel the, the power of the work that you're doing, but also maybe others that can be recommended um, to people who you know for your advocacy work. Cool. Well, wonderful. Thank you, Leanne. Uh, what do you got for us, Lisa? Um, look, I'm not going to talk much about what I've got. It's um, an article called Eight Things to Remember About Child Development, and it's from the Centre on the Developing Child, um, which is part of Harvard University. And I love the fact that Harvard University has the Centre on the Developing Child, and I particularly love, as I believe you do too, Liam, I love the, the Centre on the they, Developing Child. They, it's a really fantastic and completely free resource for educators. And I'd be every every educator should know about it. It's it's really it's completely science based, research based, and has some fantastic stuff around how to work with children um, for individuals and organisations as well. Um, anyway, it's the, the eight things, and it's, they're really, really good. It's not that hard to remember eight things. It's great. Um, <laughs> my one, I got in really early and claimed this one because I just think it's um, both horrific and and there is a bit of a, 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 a bit of an interesting side to it as well. So people may have seen in um, the news that uh, children's author Mem Fox, who probably is responsible for stocking most of the books in early childhood centres across Australia. Um, fell victim to the the Trumpization of American immigration when she was um, treated fairly terribly by um, by immigration officials as she tried to make it into the the, the country. But um, she uh, there's a fantastic article. So the, the specific article linking to is in the Guardian, and and she talks about the experience, which is um, you know pretty pretty horrible. And as she says, you know she's a you know well off uh, you know white uh, middle class person. So if it's happening to her, God knows what's happening to other people. But um, the best part of it is, and I'm going to pull Lisa here and read a quick quote. Um, 
is um, she says, remember, I wasn't pulled out because I'm some kind of revolutionary activist, but my God, I am now. I'm on the front line. If we don't stand up and shout, good sense and goodwill will not prevail, and my voice will be one of the loudest. That's what this has taught me. I thought I was an activist before, but this has turned me into a revolutionary, which is <laughs> just wonderful. I, I, you know, Memfox has been a voice in um, to, for young children for a very, very long time, and um, Firstly, you know, absolutely terrible that that would happen to anyone, um, let alone her. But I love the fact that she's instead of letting it beat her, she's um, she's going to become a revolutionary. Which we actually need a lot of those in the early childhood sector as well. And then I'm going to cheat and just quickly read out, and I'll probably link to it. It's just one tweet that came out about it, which was um, uh, which just says. I am proud of my countrywoman Mem Fox, who bravely kept quiet under immigration questioning and didn't tell them where the green sheep was. <laughs> <laughs> Which gave me a chuckle when I read it. So um, I, hope Mem, I, hope, I hope Mem's doing well, but um, and I'm, I hope her revolution is, is successful. Lem, didn't, um, didn't I read somewhere that her last book was... Yes. It's, what um, was her last book? I think it's, I, I, this is ridiculous, I can't remember the title, but it's something like Australia is for everyone or something, and it's exactly about these themes of inclusivity and um, welcoming people. I'm Australian too. I'm Australian too, yeah, which is just, she had a copy with her as she was being sort of, you know, treated so badly by um, by those um, crazy people. So, yeah, it, it, you, you sort of couldn't script this stuff, could you? Um Let's wrap up before we go too far over our, over our 60-minute limit. I want to thank everyone who's um, rated and reviewed us at our iTunes store. Um, if you want to support the show, that's a really great way to do it and just means that more people can find the show. Um, if you want to give us an even more support, for which would be eternally grateful, you can head to our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com forward slash early edu show, where you can donate as little as $1 a month to keep this crazy show uh, going and doing more fun and exciting things. Um, I just want to remind everyone as well that there will be public hearings for the uh, Senate inquiry into the omnibus uh, bill on March the 9th at Parliament House. So if you're Canberra-based like me, I will be there and I might bring a recording equipment a piece of record equipment or two and I'd love to maybe get a chat with some advocates in the sector so if you're there um, tweet at me or send me an email and let me know if you're going to be there um, but uh, as always you can get in touch with us in a variety of methods on Facebook and Twitter you can find us at Early Edu Show um, you can also email us at show at gmail.com uh, you can find us all individually on Twitter as well you can track me down on Twitter at Liam McNicholas or me at Lisa J. Bryant. Or me at Leanne M. Gibbs 3. And until we're back with you next week, we hope you have a fantastic week. Until then, it's bye from me. And from me. And from me. And from me.